What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Wanted to give you a quick reminder. If you have a question for us or maybe a topic you'd like us to cover on the uh, podcast, send it our way. You can email it to info at owensrecoveryscience.com and put podcast in the subject line, or you can send us a direct message on social media. We have the independent study course coming out very soon, mid-September. That's through the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapists. You can find information about that on their website, and then we'll plug it on our social media channels too. When, when that does, in fact, come out, we'll let you know, but you'll purchase it through their website. Uh, Johnny, this is cool. Johnny got interviewed by Men's Health for an article, so that'll be coming out before long. We'll let you know when that drops also, and then we're getting going with courses, so if you want to come learn from us, shoot over to our website, click the Get Certified tab, and come hang out with us for, for a weekend. Wanted also to give a special shout-out to Jimmy McKay. Jimmy, we've, we've sponsored his podcast for a long time. He's been a great resource for us in terms of how to do this podcast, and um, and, and he's been pumping out a ton of content recently, which I, I really appreciate because I know the time and effort that goes into doing that. And he puts out a really quality product every time. Um, he had a really cool guest on recently that was on for, I think, the third time. Guy's name's David Petrino. He's a PT up in uh, New York for, he's at Mount Sinai Hospital, I think. Um, and they always have cool conversations. It's very interesting to hear what they're up to up there. So I highly recommend tuning in to, to the PT Pintcast then you can find that on just about every channel there is. Uh, and then today, our podcast today is pretty cool. We have performance medicine clinicians that we brought on. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, some more sports people. No, no, no. These are circus people. So really hope you enjoy our podcast today. And we'll kick it over to Jimmy, the intro. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Hosted by physical therapist, Johnny Owens. All right, welcome back to another Owens Recovery Science Podcast. This is Johnny Owens. I'm here with Kyle Kimbrell. And we're honored tonight to have some close friends and some acquaintances um, to discuss performance rehabilitation and what that is and what it means all the way around. So tonight we have Angie West. Uh, we have Chad Frazier, both up in the great tundra north. Um, I think they call it the um, attic of Canada. I mean, the attic of America is Canada, right? I've also heard the America's hat as well. That is also- America's hat, okay. True right. north strong. The true north strong. And then back down in America, John Faltus as well. So um, three folks that know performance rehab and, and we're gonna get into really what that means here soon. So yo guys, what's up? How's it going? Thanks for having us. Thanks, Johnny, for having us. Angie, did you see the shirt I'm wearing? It says poutine, 28 cents. Very so, nice. Did you get that on your trip up to Montreal? I did. So here's the deal. I don't know if you remember. So I went to Montreal and worked with you guys up there. Um, and two months prior, I was in Montreal in Quebec City and my family, I took them on a vacation after AOSSM in Boston. And my daughters, every time we go on a trip, we make them figure out something cool about the area that they want to check out. So they want to check out Poutine, right? Poutine. Poutine. I say. Poutine. Okay. So Poutine. So as soon as we cross the border, we roll in. They want to go to McDonald's and we roll into McDonald's 
and they have poutine on the on the menu. And so um, my daughters are like, oh my God, they have poutine here. We're dying to get poutine. And so we, our first taste of poutine was a McDonald's right across the border going into Canada. And, and it ruined them. At any point after that, we're like, do you want poutine? They're like, no, I'll have my French fries with the ketchup. Thank you. It was terrible. So then when we did your course up there, um, I meant, everyone asked that I have anything, you know, Canadian specific or poutine. And I said, yeah, well, I had poutine at McDonald's and it was terrible. And, and I, I was ready and I got crushed by it. So anyways, one of your, your folks at the course hooked me up with three poutine restaurants that I should go to. And I went and had poutine at two of them that night. And I, it was like the worst night of sleep of my life. I died after two <laughs> poutines, like eight beers. Um, so anyways, so thank you. But I bought a poutine t-shirt at the airport the next day, just to, just to remember that. You bought the 28 cent poutine <laughs> t-shirt. <which laughs> that's the McDonald's I think that's the McDonald's version, Johnny. <laughs> well, that's like I, I do $10 in America. I do not endorse eating McDonald's poutine as your first. I also yeah. don't endorse eating two portions of poutine in one evening. And oh. I love poutine. As an American transplant in Canada, uh, I have to limit my poutine intake, but I've never eaten two portions in one night. So I, I've done it all wrong. We started with McDonald's and I went to two in one night. So obviously I've got a major problem. So. What What is poutine? Yeah, obviously it's got something to do with French fries, I'm guessing. or You don't even know what it is? No, no, I have no idea. Angie, what is it? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let the only real Canadian oh, the real Canadian. answer that. The only Canadian who doesn't actually eat it, but it is uh, French fries with gravy and cheese on it. So, but like uh, the, the places you were sent to, there's places on an entire street just of poutine places. They, it's yeah. a big deal, especially in, in Montreal. Yeah. Specifically, sounds... it must be curd cheese. Curd cheese. Uh, it has to be squeaky curd cheese. This is this is where you have the distinction between like poutine you might find somewhere in the States with mozzarella. That's not real. It needs to be curd uh, cheese. It needs to have a little squeak to it. Yeah. It squeaks in your mouth. It's gravy and French fries and Kyle, it's a, it's a freaking gut bomb dude. And it's, it's, like it's, it. it's amazing while you're eating it and you're just like, what the hell did I do? And then I walked down the road and got another one of them. Um, and then it's like, what the really hell did I do? And then barely, barely made it to my flight the next day. <laughs> Usually you drink the eight beers and then the poutine and that's supposed to help. Yeah. Uh, to that. yeah. The beer yeah. not. You did it backwards. It was like the, the beer before liquor. You should have done the liquor before beer. The poutine, the beer before poutine. Well, I, if you do it right, it's, I think it's amazing. So skip McDonald's, do it right. Um, and, and these guys could, could let us know where to go. So Angie, can you give us a little background of who you are and what you are and, and what we're going to be talking about tonight? And we'll move on to the rest of the group. Sure. Um, other than being a novice poutine expert, uh, I am a dual certified athletic trainer and Canadian athletic therapist. I have uh, previously toured with Cirque du Soleil on four different shows for almost eight years before stepping into the role as head of rehabilitation for the company in our international headquarters at, in Montreal, which is where I have grown my love for poutine. Um, I also worked with extreme sports before um, working with Cirque du Soleil in things like winter and summer do tour and uh, winter X games. Um, so I had the little bit of a insight into the craziness of uh, acrobats and extreme sports before my work with Cirque. 
Chad, how about you, man? You want to give your background? Yeah, for sure. So uh, my name is Chad. I've, uh, I was working with Cirque, for, Cirque du Soleil for nine years. Uh, I did two different shows, both the creation. So from the very concept of the show right, right through. I've toured uh, North America, Japan, Singapore, and Australia. And prior to that, I worked about 11 years in university sports medicine in the U.S. Uh, over Division I and Division Three. Did my master's at uh, Old Dominion University in Virginia. Had a great time there. Loved that, uh, that area. And I did my bachelor's in Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology in Canada prior to going down south. And like Angie, a dual certified athletic trainer in the U.S. and an athletic therapist in Canada. And John, what about you, man? So, yeah, thanks for having us on, uh, Kyle and Johnny. Uh, my background, I'm a, a dual credential physical therapist, athletic trainer. Did a physical therapy school at Northeastern University in Boston, Mass. Uh, and then did my master's of science in athletic training at Tennessee Chattanooga. Uh, prior to recently uh, working with Cirque du Soleil as a head therapist on tours in Japan, North America, and Europe. I uh, worked in various levels of Olympic, uh, collegiate, and professional sport in the U.S., um, also completed a sports uh, medicine physical therapy fellowship at Duke University. Nice. So obviously you guys are very credentialed, um, all have a sports background, and then moved into this performance background, which, which I've never heard of. So John, you and I go back from the NBA or our time there, um, and even, even cooler time. My first Boston Red Sox game ever was with me and you and Roland from the, from the Texans, which was amazing. Uh, night that we had there but so sports background and then you move into the performance background you know and, and when I started talking with you guys initially it's like performance artists these are the things that's going on and, and it, it, it sounded kind of like totally crazy different and then the more I got into it it's almost like it's like battlefield medicine you know it's like these people you know, they're getting hurt. We got to move back together because they got three more shows tonight and tomorrow they got another show. Da, 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 da. And it sounds like when I'm, we're in the DOD, you know, like, a, you know, a ranger got hurt. And it's like, well, we just got to get them ready because you got to go out onto the field tomorrow. So what do, what do you guys define as like what performance medicine is to you? I'll, I'll take that one. Um, so performance medicine is in, in where we all worked with Cirque du Soleil. We worked in a multidisciplinary team that oversaw the well-being of our acrobats, which we usually call artists. Um, we have, we worked with, and most people as well that work in this type of environment, work with a lot of um, global therapists, physical therapists, um, athletic therapists, uh, physiotherapists. I've worked with people from Australia, uh, Mexico, and Brazil, which is great. And basically, we're the ones that look after anything that any injury or illness, it's going to be work impacting. Like you said, we've got to get people ready for a show and make the call if they're going to be in full or if there's going to be modifications to their job and what that might mean for the show and talking with coaches and artistic directors. And it's a different hierarchy system there about what that means for that show or that day or that week. Um, Chad has also worked on a number of different shows as well. So he might be able to chime in on his thoughts on that. Yeah. So the, for my division, I've worked with the touring show division, same, similar with, with John. And so the way that kind of search of had broken down was there was kind of almost four IHQ where Angie worked, where the main headquarters where shows are created, everything starts from, from scratch there, as well as any artist that is unable to perform currently in a show goes there. Uh, for long-term rehabilitation where Angie is uh, heads that up. 
uh, John and myself, we'd look after artists that are currently uh, employed and working on tour. And there's two divisions of that. There's uh, arena shows and big top. So currently John is with uh, arena. I'll let him go into that detail in a bit. I work on a big top. So it's a, a big tent that is uh, everything gets packed up in 60 plus trucks and gets moved around all over the world, which is an amazing feat to see it go up in 72 hours and be torn down in less time than that sometimes. So we have anywhere between 100 and 120 people, about 50 uh, acrobats, artists, are musicians as well. And we take care of all of those medical needs, like Angie said. So we are typically in a city for between five to 13 weeks, depending on the size of the city. And really you get that feel, that sense of like, you actually live there. Like you can enjoy it, learn about that city. And then two months, two, three months later, you pack up and you do it all again somewhere else. Yeah, and just to add to what Chad said, uh, having had that big top experience in Japan and then transitioning over to an arena style tour, it is very different, the arena style from, from big top and that you're in a city a shorter period of time, it moves much quicker. Uh, but in that time period, you, you are seeing a lot more. There's just a, a more uh, frenetic pace, so to speak, in terms of you get to a city and by Friday, Saturday, you've developed some contacts with the doctors and the local network. And then it's no sooner that you're getting settled into that. You have to pack everything out uh, and, and move out of that arena on to the next city. So it's a, a very different pace. I think what's unique uh, about our work environment uh, at that time was we're not only reporting to a head coach, or in this case called an artistic director, uh, or the assistant coaches, or the skill coaches, the artist coaches in a particular act, but there are so many more stakeholders involved in the process of deciding when a performer can return into training, into shows or specific images and shows, or what we call cues. So communication is of the utmost importance to try to relay what we think is the best medical decision and collaborate with all these other stakeholders in terms of, of making a decision. The performers themselves are highly versatile. Uh, you have former Olympic medalists, you have acro sport, which is a professional sport in Europe, uh, performers that work in, in a kind of a team environment. And a lot of the acts within the shows are synchronized. So that ability to work together, adapt on the fly, as well as to upskill and learn different skills to be a bigger part of the show besides just your main act is a very unique talent that a lot of these performers have. That's from an athletic standpoint, and that's not even going into the discussion of artistically how they have to express themselves and adapt those skills into different roles within the show. So it's a very unique environment. And, and similar to what you talked about earlier, Johnny, is you're working with a, an athletic population, a performer population that is in a very small percentage in the world and what they can do. And it's not as easy to just maneuver someone around or load manage within their particular act. It takes a high level of skill and adaptability to do what they do on stage anywhere from eight to 10 shows a week and do that in very different environments, very different countries and adapt on a personal level to those demands. So it's a very kind of unique situation that was very different from how things were structured and what I was exposed to in American sport. So I, I would think like if I was a new grad or someone in school aspiring to be a PT or ATC that working for Sartre Soleil, traveling the world, do this sort of stuff, sounds like the freaking coolest job of all time. Like I would have signed up for this in a heartbeat out of school and you guys have experience in multiple other fields. What do you think from working in this population, 
um, to, you know, college pro sports type thing. If you're to say to new grads, like, what would you think about it? Yeah, I, like, that's one, I, I agree. One of the things that when you just see it on paper, you're like, this is the greatest job in the world. And like any, any job, there are, there are pros and cons with everything. So being away from your family, being on the road a lot is, can be difficult, but you're also, you're given that responsibility of really making very quick decisions that can affect the, the show, which that uh, means dollars, people's, you know, their lifestyle, how they provide for their family. So there's a lot that goes into it. And very rarely will anybody get on with a, a company like Search Slate right out of school. They, they yeah. usually are looking for people that have more years of experience just because there's so much that goes into all and that's involved with it. Like John said that there's so many stakeholders, you can't just be like, oh, well, we're just going to take it easy. There's a lot of decision making that goes into it. And you learn to work with that multidisciplinary team. And that's a huge, uh, huge thing. Angie, do you find the same thing when you were on tour? Yeah, for sure. I think if I was going to, and I've told lots of new grads or people that are also interesting, interested in working in performance-based medicine before to look at locally how they can upskill themselves working with um, dance groups uh, locally. If you're living in a major city where there's theater coming through or musicals, working with those types of productions as well. Um, I know there's a lot of opportunity there. I've met other therapists I've worked with before that have started there and then toured um, nationally with them before getting on a global type tour. I think it takes a certain personality um, also to you know, travel this frequently where we don't have a season per se. We're not traveling a few months out of the year here and there. Like it's our full-time gig is to travel. We have a couple weeks off here and there together or not together. Um, and you need to be, it has to fit your personality. It has to fit your lifestyle as well and what you're able to adapt to. Um, I loved it. Obviously I did it for almost eight years, uh, but there came a point when I wanted to also get a dog and have a stable place and not have to pack every one week or five weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Just, so, to, uh, just to add to that too, I think performance medicine can be an umbrella term. Uh, like Angie had mentioned, some of that can involve dance medicine as well. It's not just acrobatic medicine or what we can generalize this as circus medicine in our discussions, but it crosses a wide gamut of the performance arts and within those arts, there are again, going back to those involved in the day-to-day -day management well-being of the performers themselves. You have people from wardrobe who make costumes, you have the technicians, uh, you have H HR, people that, that manage and delegate a lot of the uh, appearances to promote a show and deciding which performers go to those. They're gonna communicate with us in terms of risk of those PR type events. Uh, as well as some of the other stuff that goes into promoting a city or promoting a show in a new city or for a new tour leg. So there's a lot of communication that happens on a day-to-day -day basis that you have to be one to realize that at times you're going to be vulnerable. Everything happens quickly, but if you're willing to work together with everyone, you're not always going to have the right answers. You can turn to those people, get the answers you need to provide the best possible outcome for the performers, which is optimal health and well-being while on tour. Another thing just to piggyback on, it's interesting from a versatility standpoint as a clinician, is that when you have multiple acts in a show, like whether it's seven or eight acts, it's almost like having seven or eight different teams because the profiles and the body types are very, very different. In athletics, where you, if you work with a basketball team, you'll have a big or a point guard, but they generally all do the similar skill set. 
these acrobats can be so specialized and we also work with musicians as well. So you have musician body types, their, their injuries and their needs are going to be different than a 250 pound porter that throws people in the air versus somebody who's a contortionist or just a, a clown character. So as a clinician, you, you have to be able to just turn your brain in all these different directions based on the, uh, the cast that you're dealing with. And so I think that's what's interesting too, is like, so I, I love me some Vegas and I, I, I go to Vegas probably too much. I love a good time too much. And so I've seen multiple Cirque shows even more now since I've become friends with all you guys and, and I can get into some of those. Um, but the thing is too, like, you know, okay, so we do an airborne drop in the DOD and you're like, you're gonna lose 10% of those guys to something. They sprain their ankle, they mess their back up, they dislocate their, their knee. Um, but they're like, we have 120% coverage. So we're cool with that. So we, we lose some of these guys but we got back up and we can we can move on and, and complete the mission. It felt like from kind of what I was understanding in Vegas is like some of these people are so specifically amazing in what they do. It's not like I've got this this you know Russian guy that can hold 50 people on his neck and if he goes out for stenosis or something, oh we got 20 other of them that we can pull in. So it felt this like kind of even more hardcore than all the sports we deal with. There's no backup at all. There's no second point guard for some of these people. Cause I remember one of the shows, I think it was the Beatles show. One of the guys that had to, to carry this like giant thing around, he was the guy and he had an injury and they were just trying to nurse him along the whole time. So is that kind of true across the board? Yeah, it, it can be definitely across the board. So these are, like I said, they're such specialists, literally only a handful of people in the world can do what they do. And it's not just about the acrobatics, right? So, because you might be able to find someone that can actually has that skill set, but then they have to be able to do it in with the music, with the lighting, with the choreography and stuff. And that can take upwards six to nine months, sometimes 12 months to make everything fit. So that goes back yeah. to like what Angie was saying of the having that communication of making sure like, can we modify something? Because you, the last resort is pulling something out of the show because then everyone that has paid money to see something, they miss out on seeing something fantastic because it, but it's like, if you go to watch the, the Lakers play, LeBron might be off that night. That's one of those things of live entertainment. You might not get to see the person you really want. So it's our yeah. job to try to make sure that doesn't happen, but sometimes it's inevitable. What we try to, it's like a chess match of trying to see what, what can we make modifications so that we can give the, deliver the best possible show. It's like the one time we got to see the Bucks play the Spurs, freaking Giannis didn't play. Yeah, that's but thing, I right? knew it, you know, so you guys can maybe hide it a little bit better. Kyle, have you ever been to a search show? I've been to two, to the Beatles, the one you were talking about. Where yeah. the, the big guy was like shoulders as wide as that house. And then uh, Michael Jackson won, the, the Michael Jackson won show. And that was the one where um, Todd Richardson took us all like backstage and showed us all the different just moving parts. And, you know, there's the choreography on the stage that you see, but then there's this intricate choreography of all the people that work backstage moving all these different things and there's he's telling us how this goes up and this goes down and here's a trampoline and i'm like i don't even see what you're telling me and it's right in front of you man you know yeah. so um it's it's pretty cool uh to, to see and certainly um it, all a ton of different moving parts um which kind of made me wonder um to, to you guys. Maybe I'll just throw this at Chad because you were kind of speaking to this a little bit earlier in terms of all the different folks you guys manage. But I, I was kind of curious. I know in a lot of the, the sports environments, 
a lot of the athletic training staff, physical therapists, those kind of folks, medical staff in general, you know, they, they manage the team, but they also end up kind of managing like coaches and, and family members and all that. Is that kind of the way it goes within the performance med crew as well? Do you end up managing just kind of anybody and everybody that's there for the show? Not exactly, because if that was the case, then we would never stop. We wouldn't yeah. get to eat. We wouldn't be sleeping. But it's like, it's like anything. When you have a team dynamic with that, we, are, we were employed to take care of the acrobats and the, uh, the musicians, the artists. But like anything, if it was like one of your good buddies and says, somebody says, oh, this is, something's bothering me, we might give our opinion of something based on what they're telling us. But at the end of the day, everybody, you know, have their own medical insurance. Like you really should see, see somebody because we really just don't have the time in a day because we have so many artists that actually require our, our, our needs in order to be able to perform the show. So that's how we, we typically do it. Angie, is that the same for you in, uh, at the studio as well? The studio is such a different, uh, the studio is what we call international headquarters there. It's more, it operates more like um, any other rehab clinic, um, more steady hours, not worrying about a night or matinee show. And so it's very much like people have their work lives and their private lives, uh, which is not the same on tour. Um, so we did not manage um, other people unless there was um, any emergency in the building, which we would help and take care of that as part of first responders crew, uh, like we would for any other um, injury that happened in that building. John, John, John. Had yeah, a question. and just to uh, just to add some context to what Chad said, uh, the the touring shows. Speaking from a, a touring perspective. You typically have say 50 to 55 performers typically a little bit more in japan because you have more shows per week and you're building across all the shows but in particular japan you need more performers for the sake of injuries do happen or personal health issues happen so for 55 performers you have two therapists on staff in japan we had an extra therapist so it's three therapists for 50 55 people you have massage therapists as well so you think of how a modern day football team, college or professional football team, professional basketball, hockey, how many people they have across the spectrum of health and wellness management. And to have just three people managing the everyday for the performers alone, that at times can be a big undertaking, especially when you're talking about scheduling appointments for performers uh, to see a doctor who doesn't speak their native language, which might be Russian, and you're the primary translator or you're using a fellow performer who can speak English and Russian fairly well and can help translate. Those are different things outside the everyday work setting at site where trainings are going on, shows are going on, you need people to cover that. You sometimes need that extra therapist to go to those appointments and be with that performer to make sure nothing literally gets lost in, in translation. So uh, managing the, the performers primarily uh, as that itself is, is a pretty big undertaking, but it's not to say if there was a life-threatening injury with a technician or someone that was traveling with tour uh, in a staff role that we would not help them through that process or help refer them to the appropriate provider. Following up on this then, you know, I know you wouldn't, you know, first in the NBA, the difference between an NBA athlete and a Cirque du Soleil athlete what, what were the nuances that, that people would want to kind of understand this perspective? Because there, I think there's different kind of things you have to think about. Yeah, good question, Johnny. I mean, the NBA is, is so highly advertised in terms of the sports science that's going into it now. And I know my time in the NBA, there were a lot of situations where you could specifically load manage guys tailored to specific points in the game where they may play, gradually build up their minutes in practice. 
uh, and use a lot of subjective measures and GPS data to drive decisions. We didn't always have those luxuries on tour. Uh, and in addition to that, they weren't always applicable. And, and like Chad said before, to echo his point, you have a lot of performers that are cross-disciplined or are so highly specialized. You can't always, in a rehab type situation, make it game specific or tailor certain movements to match someone being upside down in a bike or jumping across the net 15 feet in the air and crossing the <laughs> stage. Like the only way you can do that is get them to a point in their rehab where they're able to do that and then start to gradually build up on that apparatus because their arena isn't just a hardwood floor or a turf field. Their arena is going to be that bike being hung upside down or being thrown in the air by their partner and being caught uh, or in a synchronized fashion, crossing high bars and, and doing gymnastic maneuvers. Like there's a lot that goes into those specialties, even to build them up. So the most practical way is getting them on their apparatus, but there's even a process that goes in getting to that point from a mental health standpoint, confidence wise, as well as safety wise, it's going to involve, like I mentioned before, a wide variety of stakeholders, not just the coaches and the ADs, keeping them updated, but working very closely uh, with the technicians to make sure the apparatuses are safe and appropriate for those performers in their training sessions, getting adequate training sessions on stage, which is a challenge on tour because you only have so much time at an arena from an, an arena touring standpoint to get them the exposures they need to build up that load, to build up that confidence to eventually get back and show. And there's a huge price point difference as well. You know, I mean, you're not dealing with a $89 million athlete, even though they're that accomplished, but you know, NBA is probably different. You got agents, you got a lot of money involved, and these guys are just like, I got to get back on the show. I would think, right? Is kind of a different perspective. I mean, I know all athletes want to get back, but there's, trust me, I've been around pro sports long enough. There's a lot of different angles you have to deal with. Yeah. And culturally, I think there are a lot of things that you have to be sensitive to in terms of your own language, in terms of the understanding. And in terms of making that very performer part of the process, because at the end of the day, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I've never been an acrobat. You know, I've had the, the good fortune of training on apparatuses as part of emergency procedure training, but the performer themselves is going to have a much stronger understanding of skills that are so highly specialized that they're in a very small percentage of people in the world that can do it. I'm going to lean on them and their knowledge to educate me as we work together with all of the other stakeholders in the process to make sure that they return to their act and their act training safely. Um, and even their, their own teammates or their crewmates are going to help that process to allow them to get the exposures they need to build up to an eventual stage performance. I was just gonna say, just to chime in also, I think um, it's interesting that we work with so many different um, nationalities and you were mentioned uh, culturally um yes most sports have different cultures but we also have people that have come from sport and come from traditional circus there's different education backgrounds and there's people that have dealt with um, maybe different medical systems and it's important to take that into consideration especially as you get to know the people in this setting of performance um, how to speak with them how to make sure that the language is being both medically and just the basic language is being met, but also that you're keeping aware that they might have a different experience with medicine than you or I would have, uh, have experienced in the past.
I mean, it, it is the most highly specialized sport in the world, I think. Because Angie, when I was up there with you guys at headquarters, there's a show I don't think we can talk about, but there was this group of people that were using these these sticks that it's like, you have to bring these sticks from their native land and they're on these sticks like way up in the air. And it was just like, holy crap. Like, okay, if this person has some sort of injury, how, you know, how do you retrain that person to be like, yeah, how do you get back to those special sticks up there? And how do, what's my clearance for play? You know, we're trying to figure out freaking jump tests for ACLs. Um, I don't know. What's the jump test for this like person from this little island of nowhere that has to use these special bamboo sticks to be like 100,000 feet up above all of us? That's exactly how high they were, yes. Um. Yeah. <laughs> but while eating well, poutine. 100,000 millimeters. <laughs> Sorry, Canadian. Canadian. <laughs> Metric system. Metric, like the rest of the world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the same but different than other sports. You approach the rehab process in the beginning the same way you would for anybody else. And then, like John was mentioning, we get somebody prepared like you would for a sport. And then we have to look at how working with the coaches, working with the acrobat um, about how we start from the basics of their skill, whatever it might be, um, working with also potentially um, uh, one of our sports psychologists, if that's appropriate as well, to break through barriers if they were injured on their apparatus, making sure that that's been part of the process from the very okay, beginning. Okay, cool. So you guys use that as well? Yeah, exactly. And then slowly reintroduce the act of whatever it might be, because there's some crazy things that we ask people. My dad came to see a show one time and was like, how do you convince someone to turn their back to a trampoline and drop 15 feet off of a wall and think that that's a good idea, you know, but we yeah. find these people and they find us. <laughs> so what are some common injuries you guys see in surf? Well, I think a lot of it is very show specific. It's kind of like what Angie was saying. Every show has such different disciplines that if you polled every therapist that works on every show, they're going to have different things. Like, so for my show, we had a show that uh, we are an act that was like a massive trampoline, like the entire, almost what would be a safety net was now a trampoline with six guys, like double balancing people 45 feet in the air. So with that, we're dealing with a little bit, you know, some low back neck traps. So those are the ones that we probably see more overuse stuff the most of your neck, upper trap, and then lower back. And that's just from the, the daily grind of doing so many shows over and over again and just them uh, learning and adapting to being on the road, sleeping in a bed that's not theirs and, and changing every few months. So that was for my experience. What about you guys? Yeah, I can speak to uh, the show I was recently with because that's an example um, from the big top show I worked with. Uh, on an arena tour, we had a show where within the show there was an act that involved basically a, a big seesaw and you had performers on each side and they would flip and, and land on the opposite side of, of the seesaw. They call it teeterboard. And with that, we saw a lot of overuse type injuries, uh, but also there could be a, a sudden injury that happens that's more acute in nature related to spine and ankles. So there is, Johnny, to answer your question, there are trends within shows. And like Tra Chad said, even within shows, within particular acts, there are certain injuries that you might see. Uh, but it's circus. Like, there are times where things get crazy and you have to diagnose on the fly, whether it's in the show or training. And and make decisions and there are a lot of injuries that come out of left field that you would never expect for a particular performer within a particular act but they do happen and angie alluded to this earlier like there are 
kind of like work show training related injuries and the personal health related injuries when we're on tour we're a resource for the performers and managing a lot of personal health conditions which includes mental health that's a big component of of our healthcare management plan uh, but there are some of these personal health conditions that you would never think of happening on, on a traveling show but they do happen uh, so it just really runs the gamut it, it really does how many surgical, like surgical cases, do you guys get? Is that, is that a big part of it? Is it more overuse? I pulled something, I my back, my neck. It really depends on the ebb and flow. Um, uh, I was working at the headquarters in Montreal, where all the long-term medical management of the touring right. injuries come, and you know, some days or some months we would, you know, have a very very full caseload all from Chad show and then some <laughs> um, come on Chad get it together bro not related but then there would be times where it wasn't as busy and um, Las Vegas I'm sure has the same ebb and flow uh, there's not really a typical trend on that um, sort of when surgeries happen. I don't think we've pulled the, that specific statistic, like what month in the year are there the most surgeries? That, you know, we've, we have we have so much like research going post-surgical um, and, and everyone's, you know, we, we kind of know like post-surgical, you're down and out, this is sort of thing. Everyone really wants to know like, what do you do for these like chronic overuse injuries, these tendinopathies, you know, these kind of things that to be truthful, I, I, you know, I'm involved in a lot of studies. Those are super, super hard studies to really set up a good design. So then you rely on people that's like, we've seen it a lot. And so we're going to move into BFR in a minute, but it's kind of like, you know, these chronic kind of cases, is that something y'all are seeing more? Or is this more just like, um, these are acute type of episodes and like, you know, Angie, like we said, we know you're in the headquarters where you're, you're seeing the long-termers, but I kind of want to roll on that too in a minute when we get into the BFR stuff. What do you think, Kyle? Do you have thoughts? Uh, yeah, no, I think for sure that you're going to end up managing more of the chronic stuff. Um, especially as people age too, right? I mean, some of these athletes, I feel like, start doing these acrobat things when they're very, very young, right? And and so maybe you end up with a, a an attendant and a rather young person that you typically would not expect to see uh, in, in someone that young uh, or, or some kind of joint degeneration. And I think what is really unique about you guys' work is like a few of you, a few of you have kind of mentioned it is just all the different cultures that you manage. I think that's so unique to, to what you all do because it's like, okay, well in baseball, it's like, yeah, well you got guys from the U S and guys from Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. And that's pretty much it. You know, there's the occasional person from, from somewhere else. And then similar with basketball and then football, golly, everybody's just from the U S you know? Um, and so you have some different cultural beliefs, but not to the degree that you all see. And then the other thing that I think is kind of interesting that you all have touched on too, is just the kind of the, the psychology of things. And I feel like you could see stuff just, pop up in a, in a person who would generally seem mentally healthy, um, but then a, an, an injury might occur. And that person now, the thing that they have worked their whole life to do is completely kind of taken away from them. And so um, I could see where that would really be kind of an issue. And it might be even a situation where this person was, was got out of, you know, 
like a third world country or, or somewhere where, you know, here in doing what they do now because of this unique skill they have, they have this prosperity that they, that they wouldn't otherwise have. And there's this potential for, for life to really change in a big way, much less so than you would see with like, you know, a number one draft pick or something in the NBA. So um, I, I kind of went on a lot of different tangents there. I had a lot of different things rolling around in my, in my head. Um, so I don't know if any of you have any comments on anything I said, feel free to kind of jump Yeah, in. Kyle, I, I think uh, what's a really important point there is stuff that pops up in people you wouldn't expect, mental health issues in particular. We can't forget the pressures that come with being so specialized and so expected to perform eight to 10 shows a week and basically provide a game seven performance each time they're on stage and they're performers culturally that put a lot of pressure them on themselves not just in kind of an isolated mindset but I don't want to let my fellow performer down or my group down like I want to do my very best and the nature of touring you're in different countries you're depending what style of touring you have or the resources you have you might have family with you you may not uh, you're adapting in in countries where you don't know the language yes we're a family as we travel but everyone goes through the ebbs and flows of a personal life as well. And when you factor in the pressure and stress of having to perform at the high level at every night, um, six, seven days a week, sometimes for, for longer runs on top of an arena tour, at least moving to a different place each week, it's, it's hard. You have to really be adaptable, uh, not just as a, as a performer, but also adapting to life on the fly in general. And a lot of times, over the course of 10 to 12 weeks of shows that can present some life stressors that influence musculoskeletal injury that influence uh, a deviation of focus during trainings and shows and that itself can lead to injury so there are a lot of variables that that do influence that presentation yeah just to piggyback on that too john like for my show that i was working on we had 15 different countries represented and everybody has such different methods of how they view work and how they view like dedication because unlike in the professional sports there's no guaranteed contracts not guaranteed money things like that so a lot of them some come from countries where there's conflicts you know where it's like where you talk about oh there's could be a war or a conflict that's this a conversation i've never had to have when i worked at the university right so uh and one of the things is because one of the advantages is because we are sometimes the sole medical providers of that that travel all the time they know that we have a great rapport with them and because it's not results based, they're just repeating the same thing. We watch them on stage all the time and we can notice sometimes those small little nuances of biomechanical movements. And sometimes it just takes that one little conversation of, you know what, looks like you're maybe favoring something. Is anything bothering you? And they can probably functionally do it. But then, then that's when we step in and say, look, we want, because like John was saying, you have to deliver that game seven every night. It's 300 plus shows a year. There's no athlete in the, in professional sports that plays that much at that highest level every night. So we're always having that conversation of, well, maybe if we modify a little something, then you'll get back to your 85% to 90% and back to hundred quicker rather than you just trying to band-aid it. And then all of a sudden we lose them for potentially two weeks. So I think that's one of the most important things that we deal with on tour. It's like your, your athletes need a pitch count almost, man. It's crazy how much volume, they, you know, and I'm, I was with some of your leadership when I was at the UFC facility, we did a big course with a bunch of your guys and, they were talking about that, like more data tracking, understanding like, yeah, 300 shows a year is, is a bitch. <laughs> and and we're, we're like draining these mules pretty quick. So I, I totally understand it. Do you guys, I want to get into BFR here quickly because um, that's where we need to go. But 
do y'all have a decision-making process in the disability? Like, or there was a point when I was with the DOD where it's basically like, hey, sir, no, you, you can't go on. You're done. I'm, I'm the guy that's calling it, you know, and it was a hard decision. Um, but I was the one that had to call it because I was the one watching this person every day, rehabbing them. Are y'all the ones in the, the day like, yeah, you can't compete. You're going back to whatever country it is and your dream's over. Is that, is that on y'all's plate? So I think rarely, but sometimes we do have to have those tough conversations with people. Um, a lot of times they do happen. And it sucks. Permanently. It's yes, it's not great. When it happens for long-term cases or permanently, um, a lot of times it does happen in Montreal because they would have probably been a long-term case before that. Um, I've definitely had to have those discussions before on tour um, at a show level. I think it's important we usually, if there's a good rapport, get artistic director involved, the head coach involved in those type of discussions. Because one, we wanna prepare this person for a tough discussion and make sure that they have people around them that they feel comfortable with. And two, discuss like, hopefully they have a, a plan to move on to um, or what type of support they would need um, at home or if they're gonna go somewhere else for rehab or Montreal and make sure that they have an idea of what's going on and educate them as much best as we can on what the next steps are. Um, but yeah, those tough conversations aren't fun no matter what sport yeah. or life. But they would at least bring you guys right. in. Yeah, and same boat, man, it was terrible. So, okay, so let's, let's go BFR to get all of our BFR listeners involved right now. When did you guys all start individually looking at blood flow restriction as something used in performance athletics. And so I'm going to start at the bottom with John, because this is like a chip shot because he had already started before and then we'll work our way on up from there. Yeah. Um, Johnny and, and I had a chance uh, when I worked in the NBA to get trained in, in blood flow restriction training. And it was actually something uh, recommended to me by both uh, the Houston, Texas medical staff, Rowan, who you mentioned earlier, uh, as well as uh, Jason Biles with the Houston Rockets. Uh, and they did a really good job of implementing that into their practice with amazing results. Uh, and we were fortunate to have support from our ownership and, and front office to invest in the training and uh, the resources to implement BFR with our players and had really good results. So that's where I came across it. Um, and I know at the time we're there were discussions on tour and at headquarters after I joined Circ of, of training. I just kind of, as a second opinion, said, you have to go for it. Uh, it's going to make a tremendous difference in terms of the rehab for performers that are going to be limited in mobility or weight-bearing for bone stress-type related injuries, uh, muscle-related injuries, uh, and help them get back fairly quickly. So. That was my exposure and the knowledge that I brought forth into to Cirque, and we were fortunate enough to be able to uh, provide that for a lot of the performers that would go to Montreal to start out. And then, Chad, I guess since I'm going to go to headquarters last, but Chad, what about from your end? Yeah, like it was something that I was always had heard about through professional sports and being on tour. I would try to reach out to a lot of the, the four major sports, their sports medicine staff all over North America. So first time I was exposed to it was 2016 with the, the Yankees, uh, Steve Donahue and Michael Shuck. They had showed yeah. me how the, uh, what they use. And obviously they had like what, six or seven units because they're, they're, they're the Yankees. 
And I was like, well, that'd be nice, but it just really wasn't in our budget to be able to do that. But I was just kind of more exposed to it. And then 2017 met with Jason Biles with the Houston Rockets and same thing. I just was learning a little bit more about it and really was kind of interested. So when we were in Australia, I found that it was a strength and conditioning coach, Chris Caviglio, who had developed his own uh, kind of a system using more of like with the, like a pump and it was much uh, very portable. And we were using it a lot for our, our big Russian artists that were doing so many reps of training and everything like that. I wanted to find a way for them to get that feeling of loading, but not having to do so much extra practice and weight. And once we got the buy-in then the guys would feel like, Oh, wow, I feel like I've just deadlifted and done a whole bunch of squats, but yet they were recovering so much quicker. And then that just became a really good way for us to use it almost in like a strength and conditioning and recovery rehab standpoint. And then for, well, like Angie said, when we had our slew of injuries where we had some surgeries, we were able to use it to prepare people before they would go to Montreal. So it was a, a really, really beneficial tool. Yeah, it's a nice way to deload these guys, but they still feel like they're doing something. And obviously, we know from the literature they are, but I'm sure that's a huge buy-in from them too. As and and well. that's from a cultural standpoint that with those guys from Eastern Europe, like Russia, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, if they don't feel like they've worked out, they're like, I haven't done anything. So they would do something that's very simple with an empty bar. And they're like, I don't understand why I'm sweating. Why is this so hard? Like, yeah, <laughs> science, beautiful. So they, they loved it after that. You got the buy-in, man. And then Angie, lastly, because we, we kind of finished up last with you at headquarters. Yeah, I'd been interested in blood flow restriction training for quite a while, but being on tour, sometimes it's hard to coordinate uh, taking a course that fits in uh, the schedule of where I'm at. <laughs> this was prior to Zoom being you know everywhere and every course being offered virtually. You know uh, I love Putin. You can just bring me up there. I'll come up there any day. Just pay me yeah. in Putin. But uh, I had the luxury, one of the night great things about touring is um, meeting other local um, practitioners or whether they're professional sports or at the university level um, and seeing their clinic and seeing it in use. And it was a no brainer once I came to Montreal and all the post-op cases that we have there uh, to have you guys come up and teach a great course up there uh, because we implemented it immediately. Um, it's great. We've used it a ton for lower extremity fractures while they're non-wavering or in a boot and maintaining some sort of muscle mass because being in a boot non-wavering, as we know, is just time lost if you're not doing anything. And a lot of people just lose those weeks. And um, we noticed a huge improvement with outcomes and the speed of the outcomes uh, once we started using BFR training. I'm using it in conjunction with our strength and conditioning coaches of what they were doing and programming it in together. Uh, and then obviously um, tendinopathy cases, which are uh, my most challenging cases up there. People that are out with long-term tendinopathy, whether it be Achilles or patellar, um, are the most common ones I was seeing recently. Um, but we've seen great outcomes and a uh, good buy-in for the most part. Obviously, some people take a couple sessions. Yeah, uh, I was there. I was there with one of your people that took her several sessions while I was there. She was she was not a fan. <laughs> you know, I pointed out that I was the guy that brought this in and, and she gave me the biggest stink eye I've ever seen. So, oh, yes, I remember. Yeah. 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 Yes. So, but we've, uh, we've really enjoyed having it up there with uh, the, the, the crew up there and um, pre or post-op or just long-term chronic injuries. Uh, it's been great adjunct to everything else we have going on. So tendinopathy is like, oh my God, we get so many questions on this all the time. Tendinopathies, they're a pain in the ass, you know, and now the, the world's all split. Should they lift heavy? Should they not? And if they lift heavy, they don't really comply or everything. And, and 
we just did a podcast earlier and we, we all told ourselves we're not going to go down this wormhole, but how much between you three have, have applied this from a tendinopathy standpoint? Like if y'all have 10 cases, <laughs> that's more than we have in the literature right now. So it, it, 10 between the group, like have y'all applied it? Like John, I know initially there was a very bad tendinopathy case in the NBA that that we were doing it on and we discussed that case very extensively prior so um let's work the way up yeah, again I, yeah, yeah I, I actually have a, a really interesting uh, case along those discussion lines um and i may be breaking the rules here johnny because i'm going to mention katsu but i think it's totally applicable uh, we um, don't care man it, it, it's all you know there's a we, uh, you know it's, it's totally fine yeah we uh we had a uh, a performer from japan high bar artist uh, with a rotator cuff tendinopathy. And when we first presented the idea of doing BFR with him, uh, he was excited. He hadn't seen it before on tour. Um, and it was something that he knew a little bit about having been exposed to the idea, the concept back in Japan. Um, he had a concurrent knee injury. And as a high bar artist, uh, he had concern about the effects of BFR on his shoulder uh, in terms of adding bulk or making his shoulder stiff before a show, because he would typically do a warm up and do some BFR a few hours before the show as part of his therapy and training. Our main focus was on the knee, but we went into an explanation of the systemic of, of BFR and how it can help tissue healing and that sort of thing. And we were going. He was worried that. about. He was worried about stiff from. He would feel stiff from it, or because of hypertrophy, no, or what was his problem? We started to, yeah, before we started doing BFR, he had concerns that because of what the blood flow restriction would do, he thought that it potentially could make his shoulder more stiff to affect his flexibility. Now, I want to kind of add to what Chad said in terms of and it applies in this case is you have performers that come from more of a, as we would think of it, a traditional sport background uh, where strength and conditioning is a huge part of that, right? Uh, so they understand. Uh, when they lift, how they may feel, the benefits of doing it, the loading, the gradual loading with different exercises. But then there are maybe more traditional circus performers or acrobats who never really had a implemented strength and conditioning program as part of their development. So when they come to tour, one of the things that we sell is you can use blood flow restriction training as a way to get load and build strength without all of these other benefits, such as my shoulder get really big and I'm losing range of motion because I'm a gymnast. I have to get on a high bar and, mm -hmm. and spin and, and do flips and make sure that's synchronized with my other partners. Uh, we sold the idea to this particular performer from Japan that we were gonna focus on BFR more sleep and apply it to his lower extremity uh, for a chronic knee condition, but also allow it to have some sort of a therapeutic benefit for the shoulder. So he might have the BFR on his lower extremity, but he might continue to do some of his prehab exercises, focusing on the shoulder tendinopathy. And we right. were at that point where we were making really good progress and having good results with BFR. And he was feeling a difference and feeling the next day like he wasn't going to be as sore as he expected. And we were going to use the application of the lower extremity to transition to the application of the upper extremity before COVID hit. So it was a really interesting case related to how we were a managing or trying to manage a, a chronic tendinopathy with the use of a blood flow restriction on tour. Nice. Angie, 
Yeah, at sure. uh, HQ, we had a handful of uh, patellar tendinopathy cases, whether secondary to post-op or just chronic conditions of patellar femoral pain that then developed into a tendinopathy. And we had success using it to strengthen and load the tendon without so much stress. Uh, and then there was cases that we also had, we would use the BFR uh, before they would lift with strength conditioning and get the analgesic effect as well on the tendon. Mm -hmm. And there's people that really responded well to that. Um, there was, of course, some trial and error on each person we, we would work with on what the prescription would be as far as exercise choice or what the load would be of strength conditioning. And there's got to be a really good collaboration there. Uh, but we definitely saw that we had really good effects with patellar tendon. Uh, Achilles, we were starting to work with um, post-op case with that and um, using BFR in the early stages after they were, this particular person was immobilized for a period of time that I think was too long, but that's fine. <laughs> Side yeah. note. Um, and that would be the, the, one of their first steps of um, strengthening. And we could do, again, uh, without putting too much stress, but still getting the load and the strengthening effect. Um, so the handful of cases I had, uh, we saw positive effects, but again, there's a lot of trial and error, um, mm. education and buy-in, uh, and then working on patients with people of any time you work with a tendinopathy. Yeah, I would echo that too, that for on, on tour, I would pretty much be looking to use it for every, every lower, like uh, an Achilles or patella tendon issue, because like we were saying earlier that you can't, it's really difficult to add load with some people if they're jumping in the air and they're not going to do have a barbell on their back on a trampoline. Right. So you can use it in the early phases just to get that range of motion back and just build some of that isometric or just easy dynamic strength. But then we can put them in some functional positions, whether it's like getting that uh, ankle moving a little bit with the BFR and then also just having them feel like they're getting that load, but not actually doing anything to put any stress on it. So it's uh, it's been a fantastic, fantastic use in my opinion. How about soft tissue, like strains, calf, quad, hamstring? Did you guys ever try it for that stuff? I didn't see as many of those cases. Um, since it's more I, of an acute yeah. thing. Yeah, it's not in your world. We, we would definitely have people that would have acute injuries in Montreal because we'll train new acrobats there. Um, we just didn't have the opportunity to, off the top of my head, uh, treat maybe like a quad or hamstring strain since I've had the the unit there. Have you guys? Yeah. Uh, in cases of acute ankle, definitely implementing BFR um, yeah. for just if they had to unload, maintaining strength in that, particularly involved lower extremity, but also for the proximal strengthening benefit as well uh, in, the, in those performers to help them transition more quickly to a weight-bearing status and then continue to use it, uh, like the case that we said with the performer from Japan, for more lower extremity, pre-show, prehab type strengthening work, loading work. That's a, that's a world that's very hard to study, you know? And so if you look at the literature, there's just not a like, okay, this person's got a quad strain or a calf strain. What does the literature tell us? There's, there's really just garbage out there right now. Um, we tried to do a hamstring study in, in the military and the numbers were so low, really. It's just, you don't get to see them that much, but these, these kind of chronic things, it just, you know, how many athletes with a hammy are just like, over and over and over. Oh, his hammy, it's his hammy, it's his hammy again and again and again. So we're kind of relying on anecdotal reports from, from folks like you and a lot of teams 
trying to understand like what are they seeing, what are the way they're standing with this right now, to try and see if we can kind of cluster that together and and put some sort of review paper or something like that. So, calling yeah, all I'm NFL, all NFL staff for the hamstring research, huh? Yeah, well, and we have that. You know, we have it going at USC and with the Rams and everyone. But again, it's 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 you know it it's it's so dichotomous. It's it's very different. Every hamstring is a little bit different. Um, it's very hard to understand, but we get a lot of questions about what are you guys doing for soft tissue? Um, and, and we can obviously give them a lot of reports, but again, we're just kind of reaching out to everyone in our network. You know, what are you guys doing? What are you seeing? You know, early on, we put out a, we put out a paper, um, just a little case series, University of Florida with, I think it was four guys or something, you know, and, and so that's, it's easy to study an ACL. It's very hard to study an a hamstring <laughs> yeah it's like you said johnny like with circus performers uh, some of the soft tissue injuries happen in where weird ways that you wouldn't necessarily think uh, and not necessarily feet on the ground positions uh, you might have a flyer who's part of a group where they're on a what we call porter shoulders and they have to do a flip in the air they're caught and then they're thrown literally thrown across stage and it could be that initial throwing mechanism into a split as, a, as an image feature while they're in the middle of the, of the stage where they have the hamstring injury. So it's not necessarily an A cell or D cell type type injury or chronic yeah. load. It's a, a stretch a injury almost. Yeah. A typical presentation where someone's as flexible as, as you would find them, um, even, even at say an older age. Uh, where they can get their leg behind their head and split and contort their body in crazy ways. Like those injuries do happen. So it's a very atypical presentation uh, and the demands in which the injury happened is going to be very different. And so at times, sometimes difficult to replicate in a rehab setting. Do you guys have buy-in frame of performers that are doing BFR? And, you know, I, I know in, when I was in Vegas with this, with some of the Cirque folks there, it was some of their performers, it was, it was like they felt it was like life-saving I'm not trying to like be crazy here with the talk but then it's like they need to do it all the time or whatever and you know it's like you don't need it all the time but have y'all had buy-in overall from what you guys have seen yeah well for us on tour we, I started with the people that I knew that would look for a different edge from a strength and conditioning standpoint and then it's like that classic thing that people start seeing well what's that he's doing I want to know what that is and then they, they talk to him and then he's like oh I feel fantastic like feel like I just worked out and I, I hardly did anything. And then it just starts, the questions start to come. So you just get one or two that you know will be the ones to just plant those seeds. And then everyone starts to come in and then they start to see the benefits of it. And then it spreads like wildfire. It's the same thing. If yeah. somebody has a negative review, everybody hears about it. So yeah. if, and if you get that one person that has a positive one, it's going to, uh, to spread across the cast. And that's, we were lucky on our show that a lot of people really enjoyed it because of the the people that I knew would benefit from it and also would be good ambassadors. It's been, uh, it's been very beneficial. That's like a, if you look at our first paper in the DOD, it was um, blood flow restriction in special forces operators. <laughs> so we knew if they bought in, everyone would just listen. So we, we picked 10, 10 guys that they're going to do it and everyone else will just kind of go along with it. So that'll set up every other study after that. What about um, from a, like a recovery standpoint? Have y'all dabbled in that at all? Ischemic preconditioning, post-training type things. That's kind of mm -hmm. hot in the, in the sports world right now. 
Uh, yes, in Montreal, we would use it uh, post-training, especially for uh, the artists that were coming, our acrobats would come in and um, learn a new skill. They would either be new to our company or new to acrobatics coming straight from sport or known performers that have come in to learn a new skill. Um, the most, the most uh, frequently used group was uh, the teeterboard, which John talked about earlier, which is like when you eject each other off a seesaw. Um, that's quite, when you're learning. I just want to throw that out there. I think that happened to me in like elementary. I don't know if it, I could call it all the way, but I, I actually flipped off the back, I think, because I got a bigger kid knocked me off. You sure that wasn't so the time you your cousins that you actually made to tried to the rodeo? At one point. No, it wasn't the rodeo. It was it a serious thing. No, it, it hurt me. Seriously, Kyle. I got flipped off backwards. It was last year, and it was after eight beers and ah, two okay. poutine. So. It was last year. The poutine cushion the fall. Yeah. <laughs> that, that particular act can be quite, uh, quite a steep learning curve, um, especially on lower extremity, especially in quads, um, or people that haven't done trampoline for a while when they come in to do a formation. Um, there's a, a, a steep uh, recovery or a steep learning curve to getting recovered in time to then train the next day. So we were getting buy-in from a lot of people on using uh, BFR um, as an adjunct to their recovery session that they would do at the end of their day. And it was successful and we had, it was easy to get the buy-in once you had, like you said, the kingpins that then talked to everybody else. I, I think, um... And that's where we're going to be with a lot of this stuff. You know, some, some new work has come out recently showing that maybe there's a, you know, we're diminishing muscle breakdown uh, when you put these people into to pretty high hypoxia. And so from the, the performance side, the sports side, if you can slow, high, you know, muscle breakdown from a recovery standpoint, that's like the biggest win of all time. Um, on our side, you know, it's like, okay, now just get nutrition and get sleep. I've done what I need to do. So um, over time, it's going to be very interesting to see if we keep going this way and understanding that it's, you know, we, we were thinking it was more of a protein synthesis type of thing that we're maybe putting stretch receptors on, you know, when we get the swelling effect, but now we're, it's almost like it's more catabolic. Um, and, and we haven't really looked at things from rehab and performance as what can we do this catabolic um, but if we have an intervention that, that actually is that that's pretty interesting you know they actually have science behind it and it's not just like i'm putting people in these like pumps on their legs or whatever and and is really just pushing fluid out i want to add to that point too johnny i think there's a unique aspect of this and in, in the particular population where talking about acrobats and performers going back to the point of what i said before of some performers not having a traditional strength and conditioning program or are fearful of it. Uh, BFR, yes, provides you an opportunity to do things at low load and get a significant strengthening benefit without, as the case I described before, reporting, this is great. I'm not feeling as sore as I expected, but I feel like I worked a lot of weight and I was able, I almost was able to do things in show with what he described as a new energy. Um, but I think there's another part of that, which we all know, strength, conditioning, loading, putting someone under resistance and getting that hormone cascade that comes from weightlifting, that comes from BFR, the body is put under a stressful situation. 
and in yeah. performers that aren't necessarily used to that or are very stuck in a set routine that they've done for so many years that has been part of the process of getting them to this elite level uh, BFR can allow this person to take on a stress that and I'm just throwing it out there it's, it's probably just discussion point moving forward uh, but different levels of resiliency that on tour we've talked about mental health and some of the challenges that come in terms of the adaptation process that takes place but I also see beyond all the strengthening and conditioning research I also see a tremendous benefit of BFR in this specific population to allow one to manage load, but impose a stressful stimulus on someone to build resiliency, to build, say, a mental fortitude to overcome some of those other things because they're put under stress, they're put under modified load. What do you guys think about that? I think I hadn't thought about that before, but it's a, a good point. I've definitely had to cheer people on through their second to last and last sets of their BFR prescribed exercises. Um, and I hadn't really thought of that from a mental health or mental performance preparation standpoint. And I think it's a, a good food for thought. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'll I think the mental, the mental health or the mental aspect of like probably the thing that people talk about the most is like ACL reconstruction recovery that kind of thing, you know, and, 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 and there's a lot of work kind of happening on that side of things of, you know, is there um, some kind of um, neuro neurogenic pathway that, that we can kind of manipulate to improve motor learning, things of that nature, you know, but the reality is how on earth are you confident in your limb if you're not strong enough in your limb, you know? And so if, 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 and, and if your limb hurts, um, then you'll, not be as strong and you'll not be as confident. So I think, you know, from that perspective, just from the perspective of, can we use this to reduce pain? Can we use it to remove some of the load that's not really necessary to, to, build, to build that robustness of the joint structures, the tendon structures, those sorts of things, but still maintain the capacity of, of that musculature and, and the endurance of that musculature. I think there's an inherent confidence that comes with that, um, just because you know, you physically can do it, but then also um, just from kind of repeatedly doing it and pushing your body a little bit harder, a little bit harder, a little bit harder. There's that mental fortitude that you get from it's, that. So I think it's, it's huge. Yeah. It's huge again because resiliency is is bigger than recovery. You know, everyone's about like what's recovery. It's like resiliency is number one. But if if while you're building muscle hypertrophy muscle strength, you know, like we know that's going to happen. You, you do a lightweight, you throw the tourniquet on, you're going to make that happen. But if you're also building resiliency, where they're dealing with all of that lactate and all of that muscle metabolites. So you're getting this extra kind of win, like we're building strength and hypertrophy and you're building resiliency because normally from a DOD model, resiliency is built by breaking people down. You know, it's like, we're going to go ruck them out. We're going to go get you and you're going to be sleep deprived and all this sort of stuff. And you build this like strength and resiliency from that. But by the way, you destroyed this person from a rehab perspective. I love, I, I've always loved that model. Yeah. That's like, you're, you're building this like, okay, I can handle this. I'm building tolerance. I'm building resilience. I've been on lactate threshold and Oh, you know, by the way, I just got some strength and hypertrophy from it. It's, it's a, it's a great kind of model. One of the things that I found that, that artists would say is because of the repetitiveness of doing shows all the time, 
that from that mental wellness, like John was talking about, they would be, they would verbalize to me like, look, I know that the weight is so low. So that they're mentally, I can push through to a second or a third set. Whereas if you're maybe in the gym and you know, you have a very heavy day that can break you down mentally of like, Oh, I'm going to feel destroyed after this set. Yeah. But they were always like, oh, and I know it's just so light, so I, I can push through it, whether it's 20 or 30 reps of something. So that just allowed them to get a full session in, and mentally they were just pushing through way more than a, maybe a, a very heavy strength day. Yeah, and especially post-injury, you know, they're like, oh, my God, I'm going to pay for this. I, I know this feeling. This feeling is terrible. We should always say it was almost like a mind fuck, you know, like this, is, this feels like a really hard workout. I'm going to pay for this. And then a few hours later, they're like, I'm fine, you know. So it's like, see? okay, you're okay. Your injury, it's not that bad and all what you went through. So we're going to do another session tomorrow morning. We'll do it again. And you just keep building that resiliency. Um, and I, I think it's a beautiful model that, you know, it's not, it's not talked about nearly enough with blood flow restriction. It's always just strength and hypertrophy. Um, but I, I love that. I used it's, to that, it, it's that whole thing. Like, sorry, Kyle, we talked yeah. about on other podcasts, you know, these studies we set up, most of these people, they struggle the first two, three, four sessions. And we're always, we're yeah. like, oh my God, what do you do with the pressure? Oh, da, 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 da. And it's like, just, they'll be fine. Get through and it. after a few sessions, they're like, great. You know, and then it's like eight weeks later, they're like, I, I think I can handle more weight. So you build this. And, it, and the most beautiful kind of population for this is in our population. It's Grandma Smith, the old lady, the old yep. man the Parkinson's patient that you're giving that to them, I think is like even bigger. Yep. Sorry, man. I cut you off. I, no, you're I mean, good. Those are all, all solid points. I think it's a discussion worth um, more, more time and research in because there is that component of stress and adaptation that, that comes with continued application of, of BFR that there's going to be a benefit from that across so many different facets. Yeah. What if you guys had a, a person that was injured, you can put them through that kind of threshold and they maintain muscle mass and strength, then it's a very easy transition to be like, okay, ready? Let's go get back on the high bar now. You've been through this, you've got your strength, you've got your muscle, now we gotta train you and what you actually do. They're not coming, you know, that was always a thing, you know, they come out of a boot and they're just like a little Bambi leg and you're just kind of nursing them along for weeks and weeks and weeks. So I love being able to, put them through that resiliency kind of training, but also maintaining strength and hypertrophy to, to put them back to that next kind of level of what you would do for your shows. Do you guys have any um, final thoughts here before we kind of wrap this whole thing up? Well, one thing I would just say is that for anyone else who's listening, it doesn't have to just apply to any high level sport. That's just like you were saying, in any clinical setting, there is a benefit from this. This is not just something that is only used for the professional athletes that are doing these extraordinary things. If you want to build any type of any rehabilitation or any type of strength localized to whatever it is you're looking for, there is an absolute benefit there. Yeah. And I encourage anyone to look in, look into it if you can afford it on the budget that you're, you're working with. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I'm waiting Angie? for my demo to fly to Montreal and uh, use it in home to prepare for a snowboard season. So. Oh, here we go. All right. Personal. Keep it at personal. John. Yeah, I would, I would agree, John, and, and as well with Chad. Uh, this is something that doesn't necessarily apply only solely to elite military, high-performance athletes. Uh, There's great benefit 
based on a lot of the work you've done with varying populations, uh, post-COVID patients, there's a tremendous benefit in blood flow restriction and using it as another tool in the toolbox from a, a clinical judgment standpoint, it has that tremendous benefit uh, for us from its application. You guys, man, this is awesome stuff. I still say a performance therapist feels like the coolest job of all time. I want my, my daughters to hurry up and grow up and go to college. And I just want me and my wife to travel around the world doing performance shows, inviting friends to come watch it. So, um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm envious of, of this world you're in. I think it's Donnie's coming for y'all's jobs. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming for you, baby. <laughs> Now in the COVID world, man, I, I don't know. I just need any sort of job. It seems like, you know, know. everything's going south. So. Yeah. Anyways, you guys, we appreciate y'all being on. Yeah, thanks, thanks Kyle. Yeah, thank yeah, you so thanks much for the opportunity. Really good right. discussion. So let's all meet and, you know, okay, no offense, Angie, but <laughs> if I'm gonna meet anywhere, I wanna be in Quebec City or Toronto or Vancouver. Those are my three favorite Canadian, I've been all over Canada, but I'm, I'm sorry. So that's where I, I, I want to be. Collectively, and, uh, the city of Montreal is no longer uh, accepting you as a visitor. If you uh, <laughs> want to go to Toronto, but I mean, Montreal, I've been there just twice. Okay, so Toronto feels like I love New York. Toronto feels like kind of a cleaner, better New York. My favorite Thai restaurant in the world is there. Quebec City is just like my daughters. I told them we were in Paris, so they just bought into it. They thought we were in Europe. Um, <laughs> Vancouver is just like another beast. So yeah, they're all so lovely that, Canadian cities. Absolutely. But Chad, I mean, maybe your world's where I need to go, but. No, Halifax, where I'm at, it's also you, beautiful. I'm in a small town, but I've toured in each of those. I've toured, toured with both shows in Quebec City and Toronto and Vancouver, and they are tremendous cities for sure. What's your favorite Canadian city? Uh, Vancouver. Just because, like, you could go skiing, yeah. you could go rock climbing, go hiking, and be on the beach on the same day. It's, it's pretty impressive. Vancouver is so freaking unfair. It's, it's like heaven on stupid earth. It's, it's like amazing in that city. Yeah. If, if I you had like nature extra, and activity, it is, a, it is a utopia for sure. Nature, activity, and pot, you got it all there, man. <laughs> if I had an extra $5 million, I would, I would move there right That's now. That's SoCal, Johnny. What are you talking about? That's SoCal. Yeah, that's I was like, it's Basically. Portland, Oregon. Like, that's, yeah. yeah. I mean. Uh, <laughs> America's pissing me off nowadays. I'm going to Vancouver, <laughs> baby. All right. <laughs> they won't take you right now. They they you know, the uh, ready. US is <laughs> not allowed there. All right, you guys. Hey. Thanks so much. You got yeah. something else, Kyle? Bef yeah. Well, before they go, we have to we have to plug oh, the yeah. their podcast. And what you have not addressed yet for our audience, Johnny, is the fact that you have actually always wanted apparently to be a circus performer and in the circus. Uh -huh. I, I I just imagine you on you know like doing like dancing bear type exercises on top of one of those multicolored balls or something i feel like that's probably the skill set you would develop so my my nightclub name is called dancing bear so whenever <laughs> i go like out that, around sounds town. like that teeterboard act has been worked on a little bit on the playground so maybe yeah. <laughs> i think i think it's a wheel of death situation i think that's the act oh. for, uh, for johnny like was a one-time uh robust uh barrel racer from what i hear so there could be some sort <laughs> yeah. of spin-off into when i on stage involving barrel racing and cowboy boots uh, yeah we, we don't bring that up man so you got you get the backstory off air john well let's talk about this though you guys tell us about your podcast so we uh 
we have a, a podcast called the PMED podcast, P-M-E-D podcast. And you can find uh, our episodes on wherever you get your, your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, anything like that. We have all social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, just PMED at PMED podcast. So we go ahead and we uh, ask anyone to check it out. You can see some of the episodes uh, featured uh, Angie, myself and John and some other other colleagues. So it's, uh, if you want to learn anything about performing medicine, it's, uh, it's a good place to start. You're going to have every PT and athletic trainer student listening to that, trying to figure out how they get into your world, including me. So, well, maybe when the shows start again. Yeah, exactly. Shows are on the highest right now. So that's why we're using this time to really kind of share our experiences. And we're looking forward to having you on our PMED podcast and uh, talk about BFR and some other stuff as well, if you're, if you're willing. Totally willing. And shows will start again. This is going to, this will pass and everyone's going to be ready for this stuff. So thanks you guys. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you very much, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PCs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.